Father God, we thank you for the chance to be in this place. It's such a miracle, Lord, that you've given us the privilege of this beautiful place of worship and the privilege of each other, just the family and the friends and the friends in Christ that we are and the way, God, that you just have blessed us with each other and through each other. Now, I pray, Lord God, that you'll help us to know how to pray for each other and with each other at those places where we most need your help, your grace, and your encouragement. Speak to me, speak to us. I pray from your word, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I bring greetings from Janet. She's back in Tyler. Our oldest son and his wife live in Tyler and have two of our grandkids out there. And it's their birthdays, our son and his wife. And so they came to Dallas and we went to Tyler. And so Janet's out there. I drove in last night and Janet will drive in today. And just so you know that I'm really happy to see you and be with you, I left that behind. Yeah. I mean, I know. Now I know all of you have cute grandkids. I know. But I've got the remote. All right. (laughs) And this is not a democracy, so uh, expect to see a lot more of this. She's the only girl we've had in like six generations in our family. She's got a brother and three cousins that are all boys, and we call her queen of the cousins. And She's my little sweetheart, and I'm putty in her hands, and she knows it. Does she ever, ever know it? Well, anyway, I didn't want... Actually, let's just talk about this for a while. You want to? So, Actually, we're going to go from my granddaughter to this which is really kind of an ugly after a pretty, isn't it, a little bit? That's Archimedes. At least that's what someone thinks. That's not a selfie. That's what someone thinks he maybe looked like. Died in 212 B.C. He was known as the father of mechanical engineering and the father of hydraulics, oddly enough. But he's especially known, you know this phrase, give me a place to stand and rest my lever and I can move the earth. There are days when we need that place to stand and we need that lever. They're just those days. You may have seen this in the news. This 737 taking off from Ethiopia this morning crashed shortly after takeoff. All 157 souls on board were killed early this morning. Here's better news, although it doesn't look like it at the first. That looks like just a whale, right? You probably can't tell it very well. That right there is a man. That's his swim fins down there. Can I see that blue there? And that's his backside, and his torso is in the mouth of the whale. Yeah, that's your devotional thought for the day. Yeah, he was actually captured by the whale. He was in his mouth for 1.8 seconds. This happened this week when the whale decided it forgot that it wasn't a carnivore, and it spat him out. And he was unhurt, had no injuries of any kind. It probably was from California. That's why it spat him out. John, is that your point? Yeah. Yeah. Surely no one here is from California, right, John? Yeah. Not anymore, right, if you are? My wife is from California, but she's not here, so we're safe, right? It's amazing what I can say when Janet's not around. In fact, I'll make some comment and someone will say, your wife's not here today, right? And I'll say, well, yeah, you're right. So how'd you know that? So anyhow, yeah, 1.8 seconds in the mouth of the whale. Here's the question. Yeah, like Jonah, right? Only not three days, 1.8 seconds. So here's the question, what's your whale? What's got you today? And what do you do about it? I love this statement from Oswald Chambers. Prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. And then this from Billy Graham. In the morning, prayer is the key that opens to us the treasures of God's mercies and blessings. In the evening, it is the key that shuts us up under his protection. And safeguard. So we've been walking through the life of Peter. We're ending that today. 
Next week I'll be in Israel for the next two weeks, actually. And Mike Yanoff will be here next Sunday and Christy Penn next Sunday. And after that, we'll be moving closer to Easter. So we've been walking through the life of Peter, and we'll close today with one of the most amazing, remarkable, ironic, even humorous stories in the Bible. It doesn't start out that way, but it ends up that way in a really amazing way. And as it does, we're going to learn some things about the power of prayer and the prayer of power that are relevant in my life, and I trust in yours as well. So name your whale. Name that place where you need God to be God. And now let's learn how to pray for that. Let's see how God shows up times like that. So we're in Acts chapter 12. Verse 1 says, About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. This is in A.D. 44. All right, now this is confusing. The Bible was written, obviously, New Testament in the first century to people that knew the times and the context and all of that. We come along 20 centuries later, and there are parts of it we just need some help with, and Herod is one of them. Yeah, you walk through the Gospels and the book of Acts, and these Herods keep popping up. And you keep thinking, well, wait a minute, how could all that be one guy? Well, they're not. There's actually three of them of significance in the New Testament. Let me explain that very quickly. The first Herod, the one that starts it all, is this guy. That's known as Herod the Great, all right? He's the Herod that tried to kill baby Jesus. He died in 4 B.C. He's the head of the line. All the Herods that come after him are descendants from him. People sometimes ask me, if he was such a horrible person, why is he known as Herod the Great? Well, it wasn't for his character. It was not for his integrity. It was for his building prowess. For instance, he started the temple in Jerusalem known as Herod's Temple. It was actually not concluded until 67 AD. He died in 4 BC. They continued building it for seven more decades, only finished it three years before the Romans destroyed it, actually. But it's known as Herod's Temple because he started that process. And then you go to Caesarea by the sea. I'll be there a week from tomorrow, actually. Uh, this is a port city that Herod built out of just water. All right, you look at that and think, okay, that, that, I can see how that could be a port. That's just a seacoast before Herod. He got blocks all the way from Pompeii out of volcanic ash, made them 50 feet long, 18 wide, 10 feet deep, and dropped them in the water like this to create a port out of nothing. Created all of that. And then down over here is his own palace, and you can't really see it, but that right there is a freshwater swimming pool built on seawater. Herod had to build an aqueduct bringing water from the Mount Carmel area miles up to the north all the way down to that right there just to prove he could. That was Herod the Great, all right? He reigned from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C., and this is his territory. That's the, reign, the area in which he reigned. He died in 4 B.C. His son, well, he had many sons. One of them, Herod Archelaus, ruled in this part here, but he was such a terrible ruler that the Romans took his area away from him. The one that matters to us next is known as Herod Antipas. That's the Herod on the right that had John the Baptist beheaded. Okay? It's not the same Herod as Herod the Great. That's his son, Herod Antipas, that had John the Baptist beheaded. That's the same Herod, the one on the right over here, that Pilate sent Jesus to. On Good Friday. Remember how Pilate sent Jesus to Herod and Herod sent him back? Well, that's the Herod in question. At this point in time, his brother Archelaus had been such a terrible ruler that the Romans took away the area of Archelaus and put in Roman governors. That's the area. See the green? That's the area of Herod Antipas. That's the son of Herod the Great. This was ruled by seven Roman governors in succession. You've probably heard of the sixth one, Pontius Pilate. 
was the six or seven Roman governors in that area. All right, then Herod Antipas has a son named Herod Agrippa, and that's the Herod of our text, all right, who died in 44 AD. By this time, he was a better ruler than the other Herods had been, so he winds up getting all of his dad's kingdom back. So everything in green is Herod Agrippa. That's the area that he's ruling. And it's in 44 AD when this story begins in Acts chapter 12. All right? So that'll all be on the test. So you're all ready, right? All the Herods, right? So about that time, Herod the king, Herod Agrippa, grandson of Herod the Great, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. The Herods always had this problem. They were half Jew, half Edomian. And so they were trying to be Roman and they were trying to be Jews and the Romans hated it when they were Jewish and the Jews hated it when they were leaning toward the Romans. But one of the things they figured out is everybody hated the Christians by this time. And so persecuting Christians got him in better stead with both the Romans and the Jews. And that's what Herod, the grandson of Herod the Great, is doing. He's laying violent hands on some who belong to the church. So he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. This is not the James that wrote the book of Revelation, or excuse me, the book of James in the New Testament. This is the brother of John, who was one of the original disciples of Jesus. It was Peter, James, and John that were in the inner circle. This is that James, not the James that wrote the book of James. That's actually the half-brother of Jesus that wrote the book of James and was the pastor in Jerusalem. It's just confusing, isn't it? You need a store card for some of these guys. So anyway, this is the James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John. Had him killed with the sword. When he saw this please the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. All right, well, if killing one of Jesus' inner circle works out well, well, let's kill the leader. So he has Peter arrested, but this is during the days of unleavened bread. Passover is followed by a seven-day period known as the days of unleavened bread. So the whole thing's called that, all right? And so Herod can't have Peter executed until the sacred holidays are over with. The hypocrisy of that is just amazing, isn't it? But that, nonetheless, is the way it worked. So when he seized him, he put him in prison delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So after Passover and the religious observances have been done, then he's going to bring Peter out, and he's going to show him to the people, and then he's going to have him executed publicly. All right. In the meanwhile, he's keeping him with four squads of soldiers. Each of the squads had four soldiers in it. So these are 16 soldiers guarding one guy, taking turns. Two of them would be chained to him, and the other two would be guarding the entrance. And they would take rotations, all right? And that's how they were guarding this one person. That's how dangerous they thought Peter was because he was preaching at Pentecost and the movement of the Holy Spirit and the movement of the, of the kingdom as a result. They were keeping him right over here. That's, again, a model of what the temple of Jesus' day looked like. And over here is the fortress of Antonia, named for Mark Antony. That's the fortress where the Romans kept their soldiers and the garrisons and all of that. It's in that area right there. This is a close-up of it, of the area where Peter was kept. And look down there. You can kind of see a little bit of a gate leading out of the fortress out onto a street. That's going to be important in just a minute, all right? So Peter's being kept someplace there in the Antonia Fortress, which is the most fortified place in all of Jerusalem, the place that is the seat of Roman authority and power and military might in all of Jerusalem, and he's being guarded by four soldiers at a time. Now, to get to be a soldier in the Antonia Fortress meant that you climb the ranks. These are the best of the best. 
these are the Marines, or these are the Green Beret, or these are the Special Forces, or this is Delta Force, or whatever you, SEAL Team, or whatever you want to call them. That's who's guarding Peter, taking turns. All right? So that's what Herod Agrippa has done to Peter. Now, what does the church do? Do they marshal a mob and try to free him? Do they raise some money and try to bribe his way out? Do they try some political solution to have him set free? Here's what the church does. Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. When Peter's in the mouth of the whale, that's what the church does. Earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. That's the most instructive sentence on prayer, I think, in the entire Bible. Some years ago, I found this book. I'm trying to get it. There we go. By R.A. Torrey. It's the best book on prayer I've ever read. The Power of Prayer and the Prayer of Power. Really recommend it. I don't agree with everything, but it's really so well done. And in the book, he has a whole chapter on Acts 12.5. And it's out of that chapter that this outline comes that I'm offering you today. These are his thoughts uh, in terms of the outline of this verse. So the first thing that he points out is, there are going to be four keys here. Peter's kept in prison. Earnest prayer was made to God by the church. The first thing to do is to pray together by the church. Get someone to pray for you. Get someone to pray with you. Pray together. Christianity is not a lone ranger sport. Every image of the church in the New Testament is a collective image. Body with many parts, a vine with many branches. Jesus promises, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, you're individually the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, the Holy Spirit lives in you. But there's a power, I can't explain it, but there's a power when two or three are together. There's a power when the church comes together. We have more power together than we do separately. It's one of the reasons Satan's always trying to divide the church. That's why you see so many controversies in churches and see so much division in churches. Is because Satan knows the power of the united church threatens him in a way a divided church doesn't. I've read this. Chad, I should have asked you about this, but I've read the two horses working individually can do the work of two horses, but two horses working together can do the work of 40 horses. I hope that's true. Don't, don't disagree if it's not. We'll just keep on moving. All right, there you go. Because it preaches well, right? Two horses working together certainly do more than they do individually, right? And I've read that they do the work of 40 horses. So the first thing to do when the whale's got you is to pray together, get someone to pray for you, get someone to pray with you. Gather together, pray together. The second thing to do is to pray with intensity, earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. The Bible speaks of Epaphras, Paul writing about him to the Colossians, who's one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness, he has worked hard for you and those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. And of course, Jesus is the best example. Being in anguish, he sweat and prayed more earnestly. His sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. It's not that when we pray passionately, we earn God's favor. It's not that we impress God. It's not that we force God to do something. It's that the more passionately we pray, the more we position ourselves to receive what he wants to give. When we pray from our hearts, God can bless our hearts. When we pray with all of us, God can speak to all of us. The more passionately we pray, the more powerfully God can answer. 
So when you're in the whale, pray together, pray earnestly. Imagine if the whale's got you, you'll be praying earnestly, right? The key is to pray earnestly for those that are in the whale, even when you're not. Because someday it'll be you. Pray earnestly. Pray together. Pray passionately. Pray to God. Prayer for him was made to God by the church. And you're thinking, well, why is that up there? Of course you pray to God. But I've heard a lot of prayers. I'm not sure we're to God. There's a story about Bill Moyers when he was the, uh, I think, press secretary for uh, President Johnson, LBJ. He was in some role related to President, LB, President Johnson. I think he was press secretary. Anyway, he was, also, he was known as a minister, Baptist minister. And so they were at some gathering, and they asked Bill Moyers to lead in prayer. And so Bill Moyers began praying. And after a minute, President said, speak up. I can't hear you. And Bill Moyers said, I wasn't speaking to you, Mr. President. <laughs> How many prayers have you heard in public that were more for you than for God? Do we ever pray to impress people more than to speak to the Lord? When we pray, we need to consciously, intentionally see ourselves in the presence of the Almighty. That changes everything. Hard to pray flippant, brief, superficial prayers when you know you're talking to the God of the universe, right? I still remember my first time to meet one of the former presidents. I was in Atlanta, and a film director in our, and producer in our church had been asked to put together a film uh, clip that involved President Carter. And he asked if I just wanted to go along, so of course I did. And so we went over and spent the morning at the Carter Center getting set up, and then President Carter came in and did the shoot, and then he left, and we left, and all of that. Well, I knew ahead of time I was going to be doing this, so I thought about what I was going to wear, I thought about what I would say. I learned some things about the Carter Center before I got there. I wound up saying one sentence to the president, but I nonetheless wanted to be as prepared as possible for this because I was going to be in the president in the presence of a former president of the United States. Well, the next time you pray, you're talking to the king of the universe. You'd want to be intentional about that, right? So you pray to God. And then last, pray specifically. Earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And again, you think, well, why is that there? Of course they're praying for him. But I've heard a lot of, and I've prayed a lot of generic prayers over the years. God bless him. What does that mean? If I ask you to bless Chad, picking on Chad today, you'd say, well, what do you mean by that? What do you want me to do for him, right? Bless. What does that mean? We often ask God to be with us. Lord, be with us. I mean, it's fine to pray that, I guess. But in Matthew 28, 20, Jesus said, I am with you always to the very end of the age. You don't have to ask him to be with you. He's already with you. In fact, he's with you sometimes when you kind of wish he wasn't, you know. He's always with you. You're in his hand. No one can take you out of his hand, he said in John 10, 29. But nonetheless, kind of a generic prayer, Lord, be with us, or Lord, bless us, or Lord, help us. I mean, I guess it's okay to pray that. But the more specifically you can pray, the more specifically God can answer. Pray prayers that you could answer if you were God. Pray prayers that you would know how to answer if you had the power of God, is the idea. That's Tori's outline. They're praying together. They're praying with intensity. They're praying to God. They're praying specifically. Now, let me show you what happens. All right? I'm just going to read the story. It would take too long to talk about it much, so I'm just going to read it very quickly. So here's what happens as a result. Verse 6, when Herod was about to bring Peter out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. I love that. Peter's about to be executed the next day, and he's asleep. 
That's the peace he has in Christ. That's the trust he has in the Lord. He's asleep the very night before he's going to be executed. He's bound with two chains, guards on either side, and sentries before the door are guarding the prison. Remember those quads of four? So one's chained to either side of him, and two of them are guarding the door in case someone's going to... The guards here are going to keep Peter from getting out, and the guards over there are going to keep someone from getting in, is the theory here. All right? And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to Peter, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Thought he was dreaming or this was a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. Now, that's a problem because it's nighttime and it's barricaded and locked, but it's not a problem for God. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. That's the gate right there. The main entrance into the Antonia Fortress. And wherever he was in the fortress... The angel wakes him up, the chains fall off, the gates open. He leads him all the way to the front gate and out, down the steps, and then someplace down here, the angel left him. And he went out and followed him, not knowing what was being done was a vision. It opened and left him. Then verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Isn't that cool? But the story doesn't end here. Here's the ironic part. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. That's Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark. All right? Where many were gathered together and were praying. This was a large house, large enough for a large group to be there. And they're having a prayer meeting for Peter this very moment. At the very time when the angel releases Peter, the church is praying for Peter. When he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Quite often, people are not named in Scripture. We're just told what they did. But she's named because of what's about to happen. Now, Peter's in great danger here, all right? When the Romans wake up, when they realize that their prisoner has escaped, they're going to look for him. And Peter's out there on the street. He's knocking on the door. He needs to get in the house. All right, Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice. In her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. This is not good news. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. That's one of the texts used behind the idea of a guardian angel. That can't be him. It must be his angel. They're in there praying for him. She's telling them he's out there, and they don't believe it. God has answered their prayers, and they don't believe it. That's such good news. God can hear us and answer us no matter who we are and where we are, even if we don't really believe it, even if we don't really understand it. God meets us where we are. You don't have to be perfect to pray powerfully, all right? You can really mess it up, and God still hears because he loves you, and he's a God of grace and mercy and power. And so they're inside. They're kind of like people praying for rain but not bringing an umbrella, you know? They're praying for Peter to be released, and Peter's been released, and they don't believe that it's true. Peter continued knocking. He's outside the whole time while this is going on inside. 
like I said, it's a really kind of funny story in the, in the New Testament. He keeps knocking. When they open, they saw him, and they're amazed. Motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought about a prison, and he said, tell these things to James. That's James, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, the half-brother of Jesus, and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. And that's how the story ends. And so out of all of that, this formula still works. No matter what whale has you, no matter what crisis is in front of you, if you will get someone to pray with you, if you will pray with intensity, if you will pray to God, if you will pray specifically, God will do whatever's best. Now, that doesn't mean that you always get what you want. On this instance, Peter's released from prison. On another instance, Peter is crucified upside down. Talked about that last week. Doesn't mean that you'll never die. I mean, we will all die unless Jesus returns, right? It means God will do what's best. God always does what you ask or whatever's best. And God will do what's best if we'll do what Acts 12.5 suggests. So don't let the enemy steal this from you, all right? Don't let the enemy cause you to think, okay, that's just a story in the New Testament. Don't think that. That's in the Bible for your sake. It's not in the Bible for Peter's sake. He'd never forget about it. It's in the Bible for your sake. Because God hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what he did, he can still do. To me, the key, the thing that we most miss is the first one. We can pray with intensity to God specifically when we're in crisis. The thing we sometimes forget is to get other people to pray with us and for us. But we're like coals that stay lit when they're together and go out when they're apart. So I don't know what whale has you, but have you asked someone to pray for you? Who are you praying for? For whom are you praying? In what way are we doing what Scripture offers us the invitation to do? That's the lever that moves the world. That's the power of God that moves the world. I'll tell this story and be done. A few years ago, there was a group of missionaries that were on their way from across an open area, a hilly area, to get to a destination. It was a two-day's hike, and they had money with them, and they were really worried about the trip because there were robber bands that were known to be marauding that area, to be roving that area where they were traveling, but they had no choice. And so they set out this group of missionaries. They had to camp overnight out in the open field, and then the next day they made their way to their destination. A few months later, a leader of one of those robber bands was brought to the missionary hospital with a medical issue. While he was there, he asked the missionaries, do you still have those 27 soldiers that travel with you? And the missionaries asked what he meant. He said, we were going to rob you that night, but you had 27 soldiers standing around you, defending you. Word got back to the church sponsoring those missionaries. And someone remembered that that night there had been a prayer meeting for those missionaries and there had been 27 people present. How many people do we have here today? Let's pray. You may feel like Peter in prison and there are soldiers chained to you and the door is barred. 
and Herod is in charge, and you wonder where God is. That's the best place to be to see the power of God. The harder it is, the more you'll see the greatness of God. The darker the room, the more obvious the light. So right now, name that place. Name that whale. Name that crisis, that challenge. Whatever it is in your life, just name it. Specifically. Give it to God intentionally. And tell God that today you're going to ask someone else to pray for you. Now tell the Lord that you want to be someone who prays for others. Volunteer for that and he'll open the door. If you volunteer for the duty, you will have the opportunity. Ask him to put someone on your heart even today you should be praying for. Someone whose need you should be sharing with the Lord some burden you could help carry. Some way you could be one of those 27. Ask God to make this a lifestyle for you. Father God, I'm so grateful for all the people that have prayed for me across the years of my life. Some I know, so many I don't. So grateful, Lord God, for all the ways that you have answered their prayers and all the ways you've been so good as a result of their intercession. Now, Father God, I want to be one who pays that forward. And so do we all, I think, Lord. We want to be people used by your spirit in your power to make a difference that only your power can make when we pray. Help us to use this lever to change the world, even this day and this week. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless. Have a great week.